Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Fantasia 2000. We all know it's impossible to see music, yet many composers have tried to take musical sounds and give them a pictorial meaning. Walt's original idea was that Fantasia would be a continuing work in progress, and Fantasia 2000 is the realization of that dream. Now, the first ever full-length animated motion picture, exclusively in IMAX theaters. Walt Disney Pictures is proud to present Fantasia 2000, the IMAX experience. Presenting seven all-new journeys into the imagination. Along with a classic favorite, in a motion picture unlike any other. On January 1st, exclusively in IMAX theaters around the world, Walt Disney Pictures proudly presents Fantasia 2000. How to sum up this project? This is what Wikipedia had to say. As with its predecessor, the film consists of animated segments set to pieces of classical music, with The Sorcerer's Apprentice being the only segment that is featured in both films. The soundtrack was performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra with conductor James Levine. A group of celebrities introduce each segment in live-action scenes, including Steve Martin, Isaac Perlman, Bette Midler, Penn and Teller, James L. Jones, Quincy Jones, no relation, and Angela Lansbury. Roy E. Disney first thought of a sequel to Fantasia in 1974, only to pitch the film to Disney chairman Michael Eisner ten years later. Production began in 1990, and the film is noted for using a combination of computer-generated imagery on top of hand-drawn animation. Peter Schickel worked with Levine on the musical arrangement of each musical piece. It cost $80 million and made back $90 million. They will probably attempt a Fantasia 3D in some years with similar results. Daniel Floyd rejoins us from Extra Credits. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. Okay, so let's do this one uh, section by section as we did with Fantasia. There's less to talk about because there's less narrative. There's a lot less to talk about. It's a small film. It's only an hour and 14 minutes. It actually surprised me how short the film was and how long it was to watch. It starts off with a kind of a previously on Fantasia, which is neat. I, I kind of like that. They sort of they show the heritage of it, and uh, there's a certain amount of pageantry that goes with it. It's like finally we can bring you back Fantasia. Only this time, it won't be unpopular and lose us money. Yeah, I like the use of little bits and clips from the opening narration to the first Fantasia to yeah. establish, basically to reestablish all right you guys know the rules here's what we're here's what we're here to do it's a heritage yeah yeah we're not going to change then, the rules go, and going right into that first piece without bringing without even bringing in a modern narrator to fill that gap just going right in 
And to a degree, because it's only an hour and a quarter, there's a lot less fluff, there's a lot less... Right, let's distract you with the sound wave. Yeah, yeah. It, sound there's... wave superior, Fantasia <laughs> inferior. <laughs> Sorry. Now, th- this film does... Overall, it feels very different from the original. It, How the, so? L- the length of the first Fantasia, like as long as we're talking about that first, this one hour, 15, 14 minutes. The other one, two hours or more, right? It's lengthy film. I'll check. Um, I believe yeah. it's more than two hours. Uh, which would be more like I would expect the average symphony performance. Uh, 126 minutes. <sighs> yeah. And a butt numbing 126 minutes of that. It's in Fantasia 2000 moves at a much quicker pace. It's half the length. The animation, I feel like each segment, I think leans a bit more on story than abstract imagery for the most part. Mm-hmm. And and even the live action segments between each piece are really quick and humorous. Eh. And, or like they attempt on... to be humorous. <laughs> Right, right. The not, bit like, with they're... Steve Martin. I love Steve Martin, but it's so not funny. It's gratingly unfunny. It, it is. Well, they're, they're attempting to lean on humor, whether they're succeeding How or do not. You make Steve Martin not funny. That's almost impressive. It, yeah, it's an achievement. But that's the thing. Fantasia 2000 feels like it. The original Fantasia was meant to be an experience, and this feels like it is here more to entertain. Like yeah. Fantasia was meant to be this unique audiovisual spectacle like like attending the symphony but even better yeah and that's not necessarily a mark against this one i mean i think they're both just good at being different things fantasia 2000 feels like a sweet spot between the original and some of those wartime music films like make mine music yeah uh, the music it's just a bit more accessible it's a bit more poppy uh it does a better job of holding my attention beginning to end, honestly. Possibly because, because it's missing uh, a narration from uh, Bing Crosby. And every history here, there's a folks in New York, and they're going about their day. Right, right. Like the fact that it is so short, and that it is that it, because it, it tries to manage pacing and entertainment hooks in a more traditional film-like way, mm. it manages to keep my attention throughout whereas in the in the original fantasia around the time we hit rites of spring i think the dinosaur piece is which is about an hour or so in is when my attention starts to waver a little bit and it starts kind of shifting in and out from well that is like the longest section of the whole thing as well it it goes on for like uh 25 minutes it's huge right and original fantasia would stay like original fantasia will take a shot like say uh volcanoes erupting in the right yeah. of spring and they will and it will hold on it for a long time of this lava flow and bursts of fire and lava and it looks very impressive but as as a viewer especially with a modern sensibility for pacing and speed and kind of efficiency that film has ad- has developed it feels very at times like okay i get it <laughs> lava lava how are we in the same cinema as lava <laughs> But, but that's the thing, original Fantasia as a theater experience with a whole new sound system, they were creating like a visual symphony. Mm. And, and it's not nece- it wasn't necessarily meant to be a watch this like you would a film or a TV show or something that's going to hold your attention the entire way through. It's enjoy this audio experience and here's a visual accompaniment. I, I guess the main difference Oh my god, be, I can't really criticize it that much, can I? Fantasia is the kind of film I want to watch in an IMAX theater. And I did, and it was, and it was awesome. <laughs> the original Fantasia, I want to see projected on a big screen behind a live symphony performance. Like I want that. I want the original Fantasia to be an accompaniment to an already great 
slight spectacle on its own. I guess I, mm. I want to, exp- I seeing them. I want to experience them in different ways, and I and I enjoy them each for what they are. Okay, so uh, it starts with is it Beethoven's fifth? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, which is uh, it's just, I suppose it's just it's confetti. Yeah, it's about as abstract as any of these get for a piece that that I can at least the ones that I can remember. It's the one that it still is telling a little bit of a story, but it is much more. Here's lot. It reminds me much more of that first piece from Fantasia mm. as well. Mm. Here's lots of shapes. Here's lots of uh, interesting imagery. And a story sort of fits in there, and you can tell there's a bit of a narrative to the flow of it all. But it, it is much more about interesting colors and landscapes. Kind of a slightly more complex visualizer. Yeah, and and you deploying a good deal of 3D in small ways. It helps like that it's a very well known piece as well. Everyone can the, you know get with Beethoven's Fifth. That's true. Yeah. One thing I did like about this one actually, although uh, visually I wasn't too keen on what happened afterwards the the color splash and the color wash that it opens with and then the fact that it moves into these sort of very pixely like um paper birds it almost seemed to be saying something about the transition from paint to pixels polygons it does start out very like traditional animation effects type of water splashing down clouds it's mm. something that could have just been right out of the original fantasia yes. but then yes as soon as you do get to the little bird butterfly bat all those creatures which are kind of using a more uh aladdin the magic carpet technique or i guess they're actually actual 3d creatures with a sort of a 2d look applied to them but i was going to ask yeah. you about that it's, um, i believe I, they are 3d characters that are intentionally animated to kind of com- convey that sort of 2d feel even down to the eyes, because it felt like they'd stuck on 2D eyes under a 3D shape. It reminded me a bit of, uh, do you remember Judge Doom in um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did they have they have little eye things in this? Um, the whales? This... Did you Oh, no, notice? the whales, yes. No, 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 oh, the... the whales was, was... do, yeah. Okay, yes, the whales do, and they do have 2D eyes drawn on, mm. yes. I yeah, was okay. one of my te- one of my teachers at SCAD was one of the guys responsible for drawing those eyes for three months. I forgot, sorry, anything else on the Beethoven piece? I don't really have much more on that. It's it's yeah. a very simple, short piece. There's a limited amount you can say about confetti, basically. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's a tone setter. Yeah, yeah. Else. but I think visually for me, it was as I said, it was a little bit too harsh, um, particularly when they went into the, the spiral and the strobe effect. It kind of took me out of the, the music a little bit. Although Beethoven itself is somewhat oppressive. Yes, it can be. Mm. But I, I personally would have seen this music fitting more with something like the um, end bit of Fantasia where they have the hell and the Ave Maria. Oh, yeah. Night on Bald Mountain. Yes, Night on Bald Mountain. Yeah, I'd far, I'd far rather have um, a, a proper narrative than a visualizer any day. I was like, that, that, that to me is just wasting time. So it's, it's, it's a not a... If you want to start Fantasia as you mean to go on and as you have before, it's exactly right. If you want to grab me, it's exactly wrong. Well, I don't have anything against the the uh, the purely abstract visual style. Sometimes it can work really well, but I agree they needed a strong opener, and I don't think this is it. But here's the thing: it ain't just me. No. Ten million profit tells me that mm. uh, it's that a lot of other people are like ugh. Again, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's going to be all new. It's, it's good. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Uh, or maybe, maybe, 
90 million dollars is really just a resplendent of the amount of diehard Fantasia fans out there. I think Fantasia on its own is a fairly niche concept idea. Agreed, yeah. that I, you're, ne- you're not going to make Lion King money with a Fantasia film mm-hmm. ever, 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 ever. And it, so maybe as a business prospect, Fantasia movies are probably a horrible idea. Unless it can be done cheaply. And yeah, I don't even and, know, and, want to know what that's going to look like. And and you, I mean, well, it looks like make my music and fun and fancy free. Nice, <laughs> but but that's the thing. Like Fantasia films, Fantasia films work as a both a victory lap for having established an incredible artistic or like incredible studio of artists and showing off. Here is what our incredible team can do if you let them loose. Like would they just an abstract? Would just to create art, and it also works as a let's develop some new tech and really stretch what we're able to do because that stuff is going to pay off for these movies coming later and well, as i said it took 10 years to make this thing it did and i suspect part of that time that it took to make was also because it never got a mountain of staff thrown at it like a feature would it, it yeah. wasn't a here's our feature film we're gonna it's coming out in 97 we got two years let's produce this thing and let's throw everybody at it i think it was more a a thing where all right we've got some uh, we've got some artists here who are between films and they won't be starting for another four months on the next thing. Let's get, let's, let's give them this. Let's, let's uh, get them working on this thing in that open amount of time. I think this was probably a chance for them to really develop a lot of their digital and 3d tools. L- looking at plans of Rome and steadfast 10 soldier, they haven't aged horribly or anything. They still look, we're going to talk about stuff that ages horribly later, but steadfast 10 soldier aged for me, my God. Well, it's because of the look they've gone for and the rendering style. It's very, very simplified and very, and it, it's very well. It's just very simple, and mm. I think it could have aged much, much worse. As the same with the Pines of Rome, Wales, and especially when you take into account that because this was something that has been in development since the early '90s, those two were being made at the same time as yeah. Toy Story. Yeah, and, and Toy Story also, by today's standards, like it has aged. Like it maybe. It's still a oh, yeah, fantastic it's very simple film, looking, yeah. but but boy, it, visually it has certainly aged. Especially whenever uh, Andy's on screen, my God, that kid is oh, really yeah. nowadays. So, given that, like I'm, I'm it's same as with the Hydra and Hercules. I'm just impressed that they managed to make mm. something that hasn't that doesn't just look like a train wreck now. So, how would it have been? Would it have been uh, like right? Okay, we can now uh, a couple of years have gone past. We can now go back and polish up these whales so that they look more current, or would they actually have? Uh, like just got like put a cap on it and gone right. That's the best that 1994 has to offer. I expect that for the 3D stuff, they'd have been putting a lot of time into like the kind of thing that they could probably get a 3D crowds team to or like. The, okay, the Mulan um, Huns coming down the mountain. Mm. That's something that they could probably get a 3D studio, give them a like a couple months and a couple of resources, and they just ha- and they'd hammer that out and be done. Yeah, there you go. And then it looked great. That's pretty much what VFX film VFX is now. At the time, they would have been working on almost the entire production length of Mulan making that making that sequence. Yeah. They'd have been years trying to develop that and make it work, and just rendering the thing would have just been a huge sink of time. I expect they were working for a very long time over the course of these nine or ten years of production on Pines of Rome and Steadfast and Soldier. Mm. And what a thankless task as well, because you basically end up doing a bit of a film that uh, yeah. people either will, will either be someone's favorite section or not. And they probably weren't getting. Again, I feel I feel like this is a film that got worked on kind of between the cracks of other large film productions mm. because Disney had a huge, because they had three studios worth of people 
tons of artists and they probably wouldn't have had work for them all to do at any given moment. So there were lots of side projects that they could throw them at. Yeah. And I expect that, I mean, even their 3D team was going to be getting a lot of work uh, from these other films over the course of the entire Disney Renaissance to be busy with. So I expect that they didn't have their full set of resources working on the on Pines of Rome or Steadfast and Soldier or the 3D elements of these other films all the for the entire nine years either. I expect it was somewhat scattered. It sounds like even the work of some of these 2D pieces was kind of scattered here and there when there were people freed up. Like the Rhapsody in Blue was added pretty late. I think it was something yeah, that yeah. uh what that uh Goldberg was working on on his own. It wasn't even gonna be in Fantasia originally until Disney approached him to bring it in. And they just brought in a whole lot of artists who would have been working on Kingdom Under the Sun. Uh, which turned into Emperor's New Groove, but it was having production troubles, and so that those artists didn't have anything to work on at the time, so they just <clears> said, hey, let's just throw them at this Rhapsody in Blue thing and get it in Fantasia, and so they did. Yeah, some some whales. I can't shake the feeling of this... Uh, Hitchhikers fans, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, so long and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> Um, but obviously that came after this so there was a period of years where I was like okay well that, that whale section's good and then suddenly when Hitchhiker's came I was like right okay from now on that whale section is going to remind me of this and it's not their fault it's actually a really good bit and it always uh, grabs Lyra because obviously the, the plight of a small child separated from its parents is something that small children really relate to and uh, it's a lovely sort of visual storytelling, and the, and the you know the, the whales flying up into the clouds and, and uh, diving and jumping all over it was was uh, uh, fantastically beautifully realised. I, I just felt they should have flown off all the way into space at that point, but it would have <laughs> it would have felt like oh, they're, now they're leaving us. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful arrangement of the of the uh, pieces. I mean, they all are. There's yeah. some lovely just lovely music, but uh, yeah, I guess. Fantasia 2000 does suffer a bit from the first two pieces not being bad, but maybe being not quite as strong as some of their later ones are going to be. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the first, the first two feel like a little bit of they're they're pretty good, but you're really looking forward to some of the stuff coming later. Yeah, uh, Rhapsody in Blue is a lo- one that a lot of people um, uh, mention when they were the talk. Uh, somebody uh, said on Twitter, Rhapsody in Blue is great. The rest is okay, Joey Hamilton. I, I don't agree. But no. um, I can understand why someone would watch the film. And because Rhapsody in Blue has a canniness about it. It's a wonderful bit of music. And it's almost like you could enjoy this whether you like Fantasia or not. Yeah, Rhapsody in Blue is probably my favorite piece on the whole thing. And I, th- I think the two that are basically critically acclaimed of this whole thing are Rhapsody in Blue and, and The Firebird. Mm-hmm. Those are the two that are generally revered as the best parts of Fantasia 2000. And they're absolutely my favorite parts as well. Yeah. But like Rhapsody in Blue, I adore. I like whenever one of those two pieces, uh, Rhapsody or Firebird, is on, I am completely captivated. I love New York. I love the movie Manhattan, and uh, I love the uh, the Al Hirschfelder style. is uh, is really catchy and and actually somehow resplendent of earlier Disney at times. That uh, the guy with the uh, um, great big bushy red moustache seems like Mr. Snoops from uh, the <laughs> Rescuers. And it actually seems like you're, what you're watching is a really stylized version of what could have been a Disney movie at some point. Yeah, I, I love the visual style for this. They're, basically, it's Goldberg taking everything he'd learned from doing Genie mm. and, apl- and applying it in an even more literal, here's Hirschfeld, like, unrestrained, completely a Hirschfeld style. Yeah. Oh, uh, also Hal Hirschfeld being one of his heroes. Oh, that as well. And yeah. I think and he got to meet him as well. Some, yeah, I think offered some... Uh, consulting advice on yeah. on this piece itself as well 
There was a slightly uncomfortable feel to it. Sharon, you want to explain this one? Um, well, you picked up on it first. Okay, if, if you're going to have a black man in the 1930s in Depression era New York, uh, and this is obviously a time of, of, of astonishing racism still, you might want to think twice before having him working atop a building depicted like a monkey and cracking monkey nuts using some clever uh, pile driver technique there and uh, eating them. He's obviously got a lot of other stuff going on. There's the uh, uh, the jazz club he's got going there. But it, I know this wasn't their intention and uh, this is just another case of Disney not thinking things through and just uh, kind of letting their pencils get away with them. But uh, this could definitely be interpreted as racially ignorant now. The, the caricature nature of the art style for this one as well does doesn't help mm, because um, it is resplendent of a time when people would just go ah oh, there there you go that's fine but it's it's like i've always said about the whole um if if you're going to have um a, a female character in a film behave in a way that is stereotypical and a caricature like that's fine as long as there are other women in the film doing other things that aren't stereotypical and, mm -hmm. and caricatured if you're going to have a single a uh, black man in a, a cartoon about New York, then not making him very thick-lipped and... Simeon in nature. Yeah, would help. Almost certainly not the intention. I uh, What's the name of the animator again? Uh, Eric Goldberg. Mm. Uh, and, and, and everyone else who worked on it, I suppose. He's the I, only name I know. I'm fairly certain Eric Goldberg doesn't have a malicious bone in his body. Um, but the... It's, it's just an uncomfortable depiction and a interpretation of a depiction which I'm, again, almost entirely uh, unwarranted. But there you go. One thing I did want to say about this section, actually, the what I noticed about it this time round was the contrast between you've got this very Etch-a-Sketch style outline for, for New York itself, for the city, um, which doesn't quite fit with the way Rhapsody in Blue kind of swings back and forth. There's a flow to it which feels very organic. Roundy, yeah. And, yeah, but if you look at how the uh, the characters have been drawn, the people in this bit, they are the organic element to New York here. They're, they've got these sort of tired curves and very stressed colours and um, you've got the, the... When they all pour out of the revolving door and um, cram onto the subway, it, it gives you this incredible sense of pace and, um, uh, you know, the, too many people stuffed into one place and I, I actually think the way they conveyed that sense of New York was impressive to say the least yeah, and a little bit of subtle a, a nice subtle art touch any one of the hero characters always has at least two tones of color to them mm. whereas any of the background characters are a simple flat shade mm. of any one color in an outline nice yeah. really makes them pop there's a couple of things as well. There's a, a few frames that really made me think of Peanuts. There's um, mm. one where um, I think it's it's one of the... The, the little girl being forced back and forth between her ballet, ballet recital, her swimming and her singing. 
Yeah, when she she sort of sticks her head out of the closet and she has this big smile on her face, and that's like oh, yeah. Linus being sheepish. And um, <laughs> there's another bit later on where um, I can't remember if it's her or somebody else, but they look straight up and sh- and shriek, and they've got that big, huge all mouth. Ah! Um, image. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, and then there's the classic, the bird's eye view of the ice skaters. Yeah. Which is, you know, the, the Peanuts Christmas special, you know, that's that's the Snoopy thing. Yeah. And also, I think possibly this is the most memorable and uh, um, strongest singular piece of music. I mean, even outstripping Beethoven. Everyone knows, but after his openings, he's a little bit light. However, uh, Rhapsody in Blue, Gershwin, uh, who, by the way, um, cameos in, in uh, and is sort of caricatured in the uh, video, in, in the movie as a piano player, it, it, it has all these different sections and each of them l- flows into the next and each of them is equally strong for different reasons and with different emotions handled in it. It's wonderfully uh, balanced a piece of music. I think there are two pieces and just all of maybe all of Fantasia entirely, that'll just kind of make me well up just... The, the visuals help, but the music alone does it. And I think the... What's the other one? Little piece, the piece during the ice skating... the During the ice skating section, like that music alone, just I adore. And uh, it's sort of... Yeah, it's just all the characters kind of converging, feeling just something missing from their lives and seeing just... Oh, that whole sequence is really nice, but... Which happens to be the finale music for Manhattan as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Cool. Watch it. Brilliant film. But, uh, yeah, and the big triumphant finish of Firebird as well is just so big, and we'll talk about it later. Yeah, of course. Oh, Woody Allen. Another guy I have to kind of tune out from his own heart. Piano Concerto Number Two in F Minor Allegro, which obviously trips off the tongue, uh, by Dmitri Shashkovitz, based on the steadfast Tim Soldier. Uh, Roger Ebert summarized the story in one sentence: A broken toy soldier with only one leg falls in love with a toy ballerina and protects her from a jack-in-the-box with evil designs. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say I hate this section, but I could totally be happy never seeing this bit again. I know, I'm a philistine, I'm terrible, but um, I, I, I've I, never found old Christmas toys appealing. I've never found that uh, chocolate box view of Christmas to be particularly charming. I've always loved that the Christmas carol kind of delves beneath that and goes to the, uh, the realities of it. I love that. And I've always hated Tin Soldiers. I think it's an, it's an oversimplification of something deadly serious. But, you know, that's just me. I don't know the Nutcracker Suite either. And the Nutcracker prints and all that. Blech. 
But that's just me. <laughs> what do you guys think of the steadfast tin soldier and the lascivious Jack in the Box? Who is Lord Farquaad, I might add? <laughs> kind of is, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm still somewhat impressed that they've managed to... Um, My dear, we're just a kiss away. Sorry. We'll just bring a bit of a... 2D sensibility even now to some of their 3D stuff with the, with the Jack in the Box particularly and his design with the uh, shaded coloring paint around his eyes and his brows and the, it's a there's a very strong simplified shapes uh, look to the to the 3D in general with this they're not like they're not rendering realistic reflection or specularity or any or anything like that it's very it's very simplified and very reminiscent of their usual 2D look. And it's not to say that it hasn't still aged and that they couldn't do better now, which, which is the case for, like, the Hercules creatures and lots of the 3D stuff. They could do it all better now, but just the tr- it's a triumph if it doesn't look horrible. 3D. It, it looks better than a lot. I mean, because Toy Story is rendered pr- fairly realistically, it has aged much faster True. than this. So kudos to them for that. And I, and I like the story of this as well. It's, it's in the same category I'd put it as uh, Pines of Rome, where it's one of the ones that it certainly isn't my favorite. I think it's a little bit more forgettable, but I still I still enjoy it while it's on. Sharon? Um I don't know. You this don't one, care, you don't no, 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 no. I just I could, no one likes this thing. I really couldn't click with this one. No, no one can. Only even Dan only likes it for the animation. He's not mentioned the sound at all. Well, I mean, the sound is the, the music for all of these is fantastic. I love the, I actually like the musical piece for this one a great oh, deal. How does I'm it just go? trying to take. I forget. Oh, there's a lot of different movements to it. <laughs> just I can remember a the uh, single bit. Uh, I remember the. Yeah. No. I'm getting the sense you're not a Fantasia fan, Alex. I'm so sorry. I've been no, I'm I'm being a total jerk for this one. That's okay. I I put so much effort into the Tarzan one. I was like, I just gotta get it done. Gotta get it properly done. And then like after Tarzan, you sit down and watch this, and he's like, oh for. (laughs) It's not even the same league. It's not even the same sport. Um, But then again, I'm a sucker for narrative. It is a very different thing, and they did lean a bit more on narrative in this one I feel than in than the <clears throat> previous in a more straightforward in a more straightforward sense at least. Worry you not, I have good stuff waiting for the end because I really like the Firebird and I have some suggestions for how they could feasibly make Fantasia really good. Uh, if they were going to go for a third one. So that's yeah. what I'm saving my uh, enthusiasm for. Because really, conceptually, I'm better at enthusiastically pointing out what could be really good rather than enthusiastically moaning about stuff that I don't like, which just makes me feel like a bit of a heel. Yeah. Sharon, in the end, as, Sorry. I'm sorry. Just in the end, as is the case with Fantasia in general, they're, both films have their kind of hit-and-miss pieces. Some are, some are extraordinary, some are just kind of weak or forgettable, and Fantasia 2000 is about half and half. I think it has two great ones mm-hmm. and a few other ones that are really, really good and that I enjoy, and then just a few others. None of them are awful. Just some of them just kind of fall into a that was pretty good, that was okay, and but it's not the one you remember. Yeah, like I said, it's a thankless task if you spend all that time programming and and rendering and and shading and and like making the steadfast tin soldier as good as it possibly can be, and it's no one's favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Sharon. 
No, I still don't have anything additional to say about the Steadfast in Soldier. Next one's Flamingos going... Is it that one or is that the one from the one with the uh, the hippo and the crocodile? No, 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 that is this one. Although, the only note I've written about this is it evokes the dance of the hours because you've got this very quick, bright music and synchronised flamingos. Yeah. Which isn't a bad thing. It kind of evokes the earlier Fantasia. It's just it's over so quickly that... It is, I mean, they, they joke about it, but uh, I think um, he gets handed, James Earl Jones gets handed a piece of paper. By Eric Goldberg. By Eric Goldberg, uh, which just says what would happen, what would happen if you gave a flamingo a yo-yo? And then it's done, that's the joke. The punchline's about as long as it takes to, to tell the joke. Yeah, it's a very, very quick little piece, but... Almost kind of apologetic. But an enjoyable one, too. So I like, it's a, it's a gag piece. It feels like... Uh, it feels. Oh, does it feel like? It reminds me of some sort of old cartoon short that is m- just musically driven, but it is gag heavy. This is one of the ones I really like, though, because it is. It is very short, but I I just enjoy it for its gag. I think this is Eric Goldberg being. I think this is his nature, <laughs> the gag the gag sort of comedy, really stylized, uh, really exaggerated sort of character work is his bread and butter. So I think this is just him going complete just completely letting loose for a minute and a half also actually it struck me as like the most expensive breakfast cereal commercial ever <laughs> i don't know what that cereal is it's probably fruity and i want it but um it's, it's, it's inoffensive at least it's, it's it is at least short i suppose this is the macrocosm of fantasia 2000 <laughs> Actually, it is. Yes, it is. It is exactly short, what the whole quick, film is. Into, like, even in an ab- even with an abstract story idea, like uh, even with an abstract concept, very story driven. It is. It uses leans on humor even more so. It is paced quickly to right, keep the audience's colorful. attention. Bright, yeah. colorful. It is very much what Fantasia 2000 is trying to do, as opposed to what Fantasia originally was. Yeah, and look at that. We took longer talking about it than the moment itself. I suppose if you, uh, yeah, if you take the um, Beethoven's fifth section with the uh, the confetti, that's what the original Fantasia was trying to do. Yeah. If I try to imagine what the original Fantasia would have done with, say, the Firebird Suite, which is, yeah. what it, was it clocking around seven, eight minutes? Yeah. That I feel like that would have been a 25-minute section of the original mm. Fantasia mm. and maybe dragged out and a bit longer than it needed to be Whereas what it currently is in its current form, I feel like is the both Stravinsky, aren't they? Oh yeah, it, yeah. it's a, just a very great, concise length that is that sits as long as it needs to, but does not overstay its welcome. Yeah. Um, then there's the Sorcerer's Apprentice. We've already talked about this one. It's the same damn thing. It's almost like they didn't need this. They did not need The Sorcerer's Apprentice. This film needed to be able to stand on its own. It's almost like they just did it so that kids could see it in the theatres for the first time because they couldn't afford a re-release of the original Fantasia or they didn't want to invest in that. And maybe, you know, see it in IMAX for the first time. But frankly, they could have done something which takes Mickey further than that. Maybe have the further adventures of The Sorcerer's Apprentice just sticking the same thing in again. It's almost like... 
the third one would have to have it as well. I think part of it, though, In was the, <laughs> the idea that um, that it was intended to be something that they would add to constantly, and every yeah. time it, it was shown, there would be um, you know bits from the old ones yeah. and and new bits that they would add to it. And it's a bad idea. That is a bad idea because people will be like, "Ah, eh, I've seen it already," and they'd, they'd need to know that it was a totally different animal before going back. We'll take, we'll take it as what Fantasia was meant to be, though, as a thing that is constantly tour. It, will, it would be the kind of thing like a Broadway musical production arriving in town, and here, like here, is a something you can only see every now and then. It's got a different cast. This is this is your opportunity to see it, but it yeah. would be something that would be ideally touring forever. And every time it came in, it would be the thing that you remembered and liked, but it also had some new pieces mixed in there. But it also, or or like a band come that tours your town, that they'll play some of their new songs, but they will also have their old stuff that some of their old stuff that they will also play for you. And I think this, I imagine if Fantasia had gone on as Disney had hoped it would and kept on touring and going and doing this thing that we'd actually see a very similar result now that the Sorcerer's Apprentice might be one of the only original pieces still being yeah. shown and whereas it was all or maybe it'd be like the free bird people are like they, they get to the end of Fantasia they still haven't played the Sorcerer's Apprentice Sorcerer's Apprentice <laughs> yeah so I, I like that they I like that they didn't try to lean entirely on that idea and use a lot of legacy pieces with some new stuff mixed in. Oh, God. But I do kind of like that they... I do kind of like that they did try to make a nod to that and still maintain... and still maintain a little bit of that. There's some of some of the old, some of the new, mm. a continuation. And I would kind of hope that in moving forward to... if they ever... Oh, they will. The, it's gonna happen. Uh, I, I guess. they've Fantasia has proven itself... A, guaranteed loss of money <laughs> several times in a row it's hard to figure out they're like, gonna they're just... do it though well i've got some ideas we'll do it in a bit but yeah all right but no the, the pomp and circumstance bit would have been what i would have uh, suggested instead of the sorcerer's apprentice just go to donald instead do something else with him and uh, he's it's a donald adventure he's hapless he's he's trying to do his best there's some great gags in there like that i actually had to pause and point them out because they were just going so fast i couldn't actually uh, keep up with them like uh, two ducks walk past him to go to the ark and he's like Ugh, in a kind of guess you not, might not need me after this one um what were the other ones Sharon? Uh, the unicorn, the dragon, and, and the, the griffin, griffin were laughing at, laughing the, uh, at everybody piling on onto the boat. Yeah. Um, there was two penguins from Mary Poppins. Yep. Uh, two lizards from. Uh, oh, it was it was um, the one from uh, your favourite, Dan. Rescuers down under. Like, no, don't <laughs> turn me into a belt. That guy. Yeah, two of those lizards. Two yeah. of the elephants from Jungle Book, I think. And frankly, I think I've probably warmed to this more having just seen Darren Aronofsky's Noah and how grim and horrible that film is. It's like, oh, just give me back the tiny kid version of Noah's Ark. Thank you. It's not complicated. And Sharon pointed out at the end, nobody actually died in the flood. It was just a jolly romp with a boat. Which, of course, you know, you couldn't show the decimation of the human race because of all of its evils. It was just a duck film. And there's that nice little bit with Daisy and Donald getting back together. And it, it, it feels quite quick. And it's got that. This one's the. Um, dun, 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 Land of Hope and Glory, um, Pomp and Circumstance. Um, Which I don't like. This you is don't? one of the few bits of music on this that I, I really don't dun, like. Dun, diddle, 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 diddle. It is an obnoxious song. But. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it works for the actual piece. There's more going on in this than most of the others. 
I like hearing the piece used for something other than a graduation procession for once. Nice. <laughs> that's that's nice. Yeah. But uh, uh, it could just be that it comes after the sorcerer's apprentice and like, come on, come on, enough with Mickey. And and so it's just it's a nice little bit of difference. And I'm, I'm not going to speak that highly. And it. it's it's a shallow little quirky fun thing. Um, and Disney are capable of so so much more. But uh, it's it's not as boring as say. Stand fast in the soldier. <laughs> okay, so Noah's Ark's done, and uh, and then we get the Firebird. And I basically, I had up to this point tweeted, ugh, got nothing to say about this film. And then the Firebird knocked the living crap out of me. It could just be that the subject matter that I'm studying up on right now in order to podcast about it being extremely heavy, but it looked to me like uh, uh, a nature sprite epitomizing spring and symbolizing moving forward and moving in cycles and actually evolving and bringing back life where otherwise you've seen stagnation uh, just trying to do a job move forwards bring greenery to the world and then this lurking lava demon thing explodes out of nowhere shits all over her work burns her into ash and leaves her weeping and feeling like no matter how much work she puts in, it's just going to be burned to a cinder and unappreciated. And uh, then nature, the, the, the deer itself, the, the fauna that um, works in harmony with the flora, picks her back up, puts her back in the right, right place, and she is able to carry on working because she needs to be maintained. She needs to be given a reason to keep going because when you're shat upon with lava you need someone to pick you back up again and it's the deer's elk's duty to do that so suddenly the firebird completely laid me out there you go so it reminds me of the idea of the earth goddess and her role being to obviously bring the world back to life after winter and the god in that particular mythology, usually um, a horned god or a stag god, um, his role is kind of to protect her and support her in doing her very important job of keeping the world going. And that theme is something that I have seen, I've seen it in Ghibli films, I've seen it in Akami, I've seen it in slightly more subtle ways in numerous Final Fantasy films, uh, Final Fantasy games, sorry, yes, absolutely the fifth element. See, that elk's just playing a white knight, he doesn't really mean it. She won't have sex with him. (laughs) Sorry, just, just, it's about ethics in game journalism. Stop it. (laughs) Carry on, sorry, I stepped on your point, yeah. But no, that's, no, that's I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd kind of completed my point. Um, but and the other thing is as well the fact that her when she cries, it's that's what brings the dead places back to life. That's Rapunzel, the magical tears healing and and mm. um, you know bringing the life back. So I mean, all this stuff is 
so narratively strong you wouldn't necessarily expect to see it in a, a piece in Fantasia yeah. um, sticks out like a very healthy thumb healthy thumb amongst a lot of sore fingers yeah. but no I, I think one thing I wanted to say about this that sort of the film as a whole is that it really kind of got across to me the artistic elements of Fantasia in direct opposition to the kind of movie as product mm. elements because they, they use this sort of visual representation to um, uh, to combine with the music but the most likely um, juncture at which that's really going to appeal to your audience members is if the visual representation coincides with what their interpretation of the music would be anyway. I, I noticed it much more strongly in this one than with the original Fantasia because there are so many of them that work for me in that one. In this one there are more that jar and I realised that I, I liked the one so much more where if I wasn't seeing the visuals I was just hearing the music what I would come up with in my own head was actually quite similar to, to the themes at least and, and some of the vague uh, images and ideas that they, they'd put with it because that makes it a very individual experience and if you don't get that connection there's kind of a discordance there you're you're listening to something that's evoking one thing in your head and yet you're seeing something which is trying to convey something else and if they don't match then that piece isn't going to work for you and it made me think about the idea of art being kind of built up in layers over time because you've got sort of the, your classic paintings are visual only. It's entirely up to the viewer, to the, the person who's looking at the painting to come up with everything else that goes around that. Music, if you're listening to music on its own, you get to fill in all the gaps, the, you know, the, the visuals that that evokes for you, uh, whatever narrative you might want to put with that. Obviously, when you've got something that's got lyrics, then the narrative is kind of there already, but you can expand on that um, for the duration of that piece of music. Um, and even when when you're getting into sort of verbal and written narrative if it's a book that's all you have you get to create the pictures you get to put the sounds with it you you know you create the audio but when you look at art forms which combine those things so theater um if you go way back sort of even your your shadow puppet shows where you've got a visual element and you'd have um you know people playing drums and things in the background to add music to it and maybe a narrator telling a story then you get into sort of things like film and then on to video games where we've talked about this before that it's combining your visuals with your audio with your narrative and then into that you add interactivity which you don't have in any other art form and the amount of skill that it takes to combine all of these uh, these methods of conveying emotion and still come out with something that is artistically coherent I can kind of forgive them for hitting a bum note every now and again because it's not always going to work but it's a brave thing to try well said what did you think of the Firebird specifically? Again, the Firebird is one of my favorites on this whole thing. And I think it, we talked about the uh, Flamingos with Yo-Yo's bit kind of being a, is what it micro Fantasia or macro? 2000 is, a macro, yeah. Okay, a macrocosm of what Fantasia 2000 is functionally. I feel like the Firebird is what, they I think the Firebird is be. what Fantasia 2000 in its ideal form 
yeah. would be. I think Firebird absolutely nails capturing the sense of of what Fantasia was originally, while bringing a more of a narrative-driven focus than a lot of the old Fantasia stuff had, yeah. while still being an incredible, like, artistic tour de force. Like, that is a stunning-looking piece. And I only really noticed it just this last time, looking at the design of the sprite. There is some staggering complexity to that character's yeah. design. Like, the amount of detail they've put into the hair and the just the wisps of her kind of cloak body behind her and the uh, particle effects following her and just the layers upon layers of colors and shading and lots of other stuff. It's actually a really complex character design. Very difficult to animate and it looks incredible. The whole piece does. I'm not saying that you'd want to hit this same sort of tone note with every single piece. I, th I think it's good having that variety of some that are more fun, some that are more somber and others that are abstract or very clearly a story driven thing. But I feel like Firebird hits that sweet spot, that ideal spot of Fantasia, but a little bit more meant to be a theater going experience, not necessarily a symphony substitute, but an actual like theater movie experience. I think Firebird hits that perfect mark. And I don't know if we're going to see another Fantasia anytime soon. I would think that they will ev somewhat, eventually some head of animation and some executive will be in charge who had either have forgotten or don't care <laughs> how badly these films did and will still want to do it. We got and 150 I, million we're going to throw at this thing. Yeah, and now would be a great time to do it when they're on top of the world making all the money. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I don't know if they... I mean, Eisner's not in charge anymore, and he hated this, so... I'm... But both times before, they precipitated a period of not quite knowing what they're doing. I mean, the, uh, um, the, the next three Disney films in the original Golden Age are now critically acclaimed, uh, but they didn't make Disney the money they needed back in, yeah, back in the day. Neither did the ones following the original Fantasia yeah. either, you're right. So, you so put it this, was on the downswing. Do a, do, yeah, do a Fantasia at the pinnacle, and then down you go for the, for the renewal. Yeah. Actually, that the way you phrase that brings up a fine point. Firebird is a macrocosm of Disney animation entirely. Yep. <laughs> Just the something springing to life and being beautiful and great and wonderful, and then a horrible fiery <laughs> crash and burn, <laughs> and then a beautiful triumphant renewal that was even better than before. Yeah. And nice. Gosh, that bit like that. The, not only the music, but some of the visuals and that big sweeping triumphant return of greenery after the Firebird sequence when she's bringing it, when she's bringing everything back up and that big sweeping shot of her flying through, like across the landscape and trees and greenery and a whole forest springing up instantly behind her is such a like technically and artistically such an amazing shot. <laughs> this is not a perfect, this is not a perfect film in general, but I am so happy it exists for the few shining points in it. Agreed actually. For, for that, you know, like I said, the uh, I'd forgotten how incredible and important the Fargo was. So I was sitting through being as sardonic as, as I have been up to now, and um, then, like I said, it floored me. <clears throat> you were having to struggle not to well up when you were describing that, weren't you? I think I was even a little bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
there were three notable pieces that one of them definitely didn't make this film. The other two were made for Fantasia 2006. There's probably more that I haven't uh, uh, covered, but um, Destino was one of them. That's the one with Salvador Dali's uh, design behind it. And what they did was, um, it was an original, like, ages ago collaboration with Dali and and Disney, and they went back to it and restored it, and it was going to be in the main film, and they decided against it. And they've restored it, and it's on the Blu-ray, which is great. And I kind of feel like they needed to take that plunge, do something a little bit weird, a little bit more abstract, and actually put something more in this, because the film feels a little bit light without it, especially around the midsection. Yeah, I think it could have... It's not like it would have made it suddenly a triumph and flawless, but adding... Fantasia Original had some of those kind of weird, interesting, abstract ideas, and I think a little bit more abstraction would at least help this to feel a bit more like a, a classic Fantasia experience. Even if it would weird people out, and it's certainly not audience friendly, it's uh, oh yeah, it's sometimes it's more important to be bold and striking than it is to be safe and try to please everybody, um, especially with a piece that is meant to be a, as close to just raw artistic expression, yeah, and not necessarily storytelling as Fantasia is, you might as well just go all the way. I mean, you're combining uh, two of the most defining voices of the 20th century in art at that stage it's it's kind of something that needs to be done whether yeah. people like it or not two other pieces uh, one by one which is uh, was going to be made for Fantasia 2006 which is a planned third film that they shelved uh, this is uh, set to uh, Lebo M's uh, one by one which actually features in the Lion King um, stage musical and that's that wonderful little uh, it's a short you can find it on YouTube of uh, uh, kids playing with a kite it's charming, and it would definitely have strengthened this, principally because I think what they were trying to go for here was that they were going for music that wasn't just classical. And uh, obviously, Lebo M is more world music. That was a direction that Fantasia 2006 could have gone. I kind of wish I'd like to see that what they what they had assembled. You know, just I, I'd be intrigued to see what new directions they were going in there. The third one is uh, The Little Match Girl, which ended up being on the DVD and Blu-ray of The Little Mermaid, and that slays me. Hans Christian Andersen obviously wrote The Steadfast Tin Soldier, and I don't give a toss about that, but The Little Match Girl, if you've got The uh, Little Mermaid Blu-ray and haven't delved into it, it's on there. If you've got, I think it's either the Diamond or the Platinum Edition of Little Mermaid, it's on there as well. You can probably find it on uh, YouTube. Very simple little story. Little girl freezing to death on the streets of St. Petersburg. Does she strike the matches that she needs to sell to get food and to get a little bit of warmth? Or does she hold off and possibly manage to maybe uh, secure a, a tiny hope of a future? And she loses herself in dreaming 
uh, about the uh, the grandmother and the family that she lost, and um, it's absolutely astonishing. If that had been in this film, Fantasia 2000 would have done way better. It wouldn't have made people happy, but it would have flawed people. Yeah, it, it feels like it could use something of a... <clears throat> are there lots of little pieces that do have a tug at the heartstrings moments yeah, strewn about? But, but nothing are not, that ends on a devastating They're, very, like they're very light. There's nothing that'll yeah. really... Yeah, just that sort of sad... The sadness spectrum yeah. of... I mean, it would have had... Some, it's pretty light. You'd have heard the wailing of children in the cinemas. It would have almost been awful to be part of. Just as everyone weeping in the dark. But, um... <laughs> That stuff sells. Titanic says so. And I've, I've jotted down a few ways that a Fantasia 3D potentially could be incredible, especially with Disney now. What did Disney have now that they didn't back then uh, in 1999? Well, they've got an actual, like, the 3D department that existed in Disney at that time is no more. It was completely scrapped uh, at a certain point, and the current. 3D studio that exists now is a uh, completely new beast that is doing far more effective work on yeah. the whole. Okay, so they've got more technical capability. Right. They've got all the money. As I all before. the money in the world. <laughs> uh, Thanks to their investment in... Uh, partly, yeah, and due to their investment in Pixar. And their investment in... Marvel. Yes. Oh, my. Which also extends to their investment in... Star Wars. Star Wars. Let me paint you a picture. Fantasia 3D, and on the posters, Iron Man, R2-D2, Elsa and Anna, Groot and Rocket Raccoon, Simba, Mulan, Minnie Mouse, Indiana Jones... Mary Poppins, Doctor Strange, Inside Out, Coco, Black Panther, Darth Vader, you name it. And instead of... Here is the classical music that is wonderful and prestigious and it's part of the heritage of Fantasia and we must keep wheeling this stuff out and we must keep classical music relevant. Brand new scores, brand new pieces scored by John Williams, Thomas Newman, Hans Zimmer, David Arnold, Michael Giacchino, Alan Silvestri, Henry Jackman, Mark Mothersborough and Howard Shaw. You use your Marvel characters... You use your Star Wars characters. You use your Disney characters. When they were doing the Noah's Ark thing, I realized, why aren't the lions Simba and Nala? Why aren't the elephants the ones from Dumbo? They could have done any number of animals from Disney. There could have been a bit where Pongo and Perdita came in as the dogs, and then all of the dogs from Oliver and Company and um, Fox and the Hound turn up, and Donald's like, and then basically ushers them in through this little back hatch to make sure that all the Disney dogs can get in. It sounds overly cute, but have you any idea how magical it would be to see all of these characters that we've loved over the years combined to show off the incredible list of properties that Disney had, has, and now in this 
wonderfully finger-on-the-pulse way can deliver a massive cinematic concerto experience using the modern-day classical composers, which are those of modern-day film scores. This would sell tickets. Imagine a, a John Williams scored Star Wars sequence featuring classic Star Wars characters. Beautiful Disney animation with the story playing out with neither words nor sound effects. And you get that, and then you get Iron Man trying to do a thing, and then you get just all of these things playing in there, and then you get Beauty and the Beast with their uh, situation, and you have maybe, what, eight really strong little vignettes, every single one of them more appealing than the next? That would sell, and they can totally do that. More narrative, less sound shape, stop treating everyone like children in the 1930s. We have more complex and refined taste now. However, reintroduce Mickey Mouse, because we've been waiting for this to happen. No more of this Sorcerer's Apprentice stuff. Make us ache for Mickey. Show us a story which Mickey is involved in, which actually makes us really care about Mickey Mouse. Get rid of that stupid squeaky voice and get us back to the heart of the mouse who just tries to make things work. And that is your closer. And then by the end of that, Fantasia 3D, Mickey Mouse is suddenly a big Disney business again. I thank you. I would like to watch this thing and I would like to see it exist. I, this is not what I would want to see Fantasia turn into, though. Of course it wouldn't, because you're all about the heritage. Well, no, not even, not even the heritage. I, the fact that Fantasia exists, it is a... It is a thing that is a very poor business decision from the start, which is why it keeps not making money. They're over two. It is something that is done clearly because there are people there loving the art of what they do, and no other reason. There is this is they're like the least corporate kind of film I can imagine yeah. a huge corporation making. Th these are things done for like these are done to show this is an art that we're doing, and we usually do this for characters and stories and making movies. But let's just take these art these artists and these incredible resources we have and just make something that is just art on its own no branding no no disney like minimal branding at least they've still got disney they've mickey and donald and some of these other characters in there but like i love the idea of having the like original composers making uh the the idea that you presented i like a lot and i would still very much like to see but turning maybe without fantasia, the fantasia name maybe it would uh uh it would actually keep audiences away give it a different name well sure yeah like give it give it something as a make it its own thing that is a sort of fantasia like experience but turning fantasia into a exercise in branding turning well, make, tur turning it into kingdom hearts the fantasia what is... i just described is not <laughs> the opposite of art mr Floyd. Well, no, no, not the opposite of, no no i'm i i work as a commercial artist i know i know very well the 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 little rocky middle ground between there that's that is where i work but what i'm saying is if you do turn it into a look at all of the characters you know look at all of the music and the stuff that you already know as opposed to just letting it stand as its own new creation and its own original thing of letting the artist like i would not want to necessarily see fantasia become that sort of it's a very different goal and it's something that I would love. That's the thing. I would love for them both to exist. Actually, like I, the thing that you that you describe sounds like an awesome experience, and one that they could that would actually be f 
financially successful and they could actually make money with. And I would love hearing Disney uh, uh, executives. You can take that one to the bank, by the way. Yeah, even just hearing those composers come back in and create new music with the, the based on those sort of scores and those worlds would be awesome. Mm. And it would be totally something that I would love to see. I'd, I'd love to see them basically create not really a music video, but just a <laughs> just taking these worlds and making a musical piece with like with visuals telling a story well yeah, yeah. That, that would be awesome but it is a very fundamentally different thing from fantasia and i think what i think fantasia's existence from the get-go is a really special unique thing even if it is never financially successful even if it is never something that is com- a complete resounding success without any weaknesses i love that fantasia exists <laughs> as it is could you possibly think of a way that uh, Fantasia retaining the same direction could work for a third one? I think uh, financially, who knows? But I think no, 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 no. It's got to work financially. Artistically, we know that it can work. We've always, it's been proven. Like if you you know deliver more like the Firebird, um, then a, a third Fantasia could have triumphant moments. But I mean, in a way that will actually grab the public. Or is it a is it um, a catch twenty two situation that if they do retain this artistic sensibility specifically at the expense of broader appeal, they will never get that. That that is actually a very good a good question. I think pieces like the Firebird and Rhapsody in Blue and just how very successful they are at doing what what they at what they can. I think I think they tap into the sort of experience that Fantasia could be in its in its general like uncompromised sort of form I like the description that Ed Catmull has given of the push-pull of what commercial art is because on one side with commercial art you have the artists and the directors who are wanting to make the director wants to make the least marketable film that they can in a way they want to tell a story they want to create their original vision without compromising it whatsoever to something that is going to make money but on the other end you've got the marketers the people whose job it is to sell this to sell this movie who wants it to be a marketable thing and the two of them are always going to be in a tug of war the artists are constantly going to be wanting to make the most incredible expensive amazing looking piece of art that they ever could make but the producers are there to keep this to get this film actually out (laughs) like to make it actually get finished and released and not go incredibly over budget and you need always need that tug of war to happen and be actively happening and you need no side to win for commercial art to work because as soon as the artist and the director get their way then the film goes way over budget it goes way over schedule and they may make the thing they wanted to make but the company is going to tank because they can't be they can't sell it and they spent way too much money on it and the company's going to collapse and they can't create anything ever again if the business <laughs> side wins then the, the if the producers win and they say no it's like cut off the art right here we're shipping it as is and the mark and the marketers win and and get the film to be compromised in enough ways to be something that they can easily sell, then it loses all You get all its Amazing soul. Spider-Man 2. Yeah, then it, it it has no soul left. It is clearly just a super compromised, very businessy feeling, just box clinical... Ticking. Yeah, box-ticking kind of work that just does not feel like it has any artistic heart to it at all. What I love about Fantasia is that it is the artist's winning and nearly sinking the ship every time. <laughs> <laughs> it is the artist's... It is the artist we and did director. It. Yeah, basically. It is the artist. You're killing us! 
Fantasia is the artist getting control to create without like any compromise whatsoever and to make an artistic piece that is not marketable in any way, shape, or form. It, it, but and, it, it, and it doesn't oh, sell, it, on, so that's why. did compromise on some level. Destino wasn't in this. They shifted stuff around. They put Rhapsody in Blue there as almost an afterthought. This thing was being swapped and changed around. It doesn't... Fantasia doesn't have... You know, it, you, you, it's supposed to be the analogue of going to uh, um, a symphony and actually seeing a, a series of music sort of play out. It doesn't have that same narrative flow as watching a composition that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's bitty. It's got sections to it. And if they treated it, and they did, like, well, we can just swap that out and put that one in. We've got to have the Sorcerer's Apprentice, even though it doesn't quite fit. It ends up being not a Beatles album, but a selection of someone's favorite Beatles tracks that they put into a playlist. So I mean, it might actually be like I've I've made like a whitest album, which is basically the white album with all the crap taken out of it, <laughs> and it's a really good playlist. But it's not obviously what they intended originally, and it's almost like had the artist had complete control, they would have stuck Destino in there. Maybe Rhapsody in Blue wouldn't even be required because uh, it would have been a different shape to begin with. I think that there was a lot more conflict between those two powers than you're describing. It's um, it's not a triumph for bohemians in quite such a, a no, no, no. way. Fantasia it's 2000 almost... especially does feel much more like it has been a bit more of a compromise between those yeah. groups, because that which which explains its quicker runtime, it's more yeah. pacey, it's attempts it's attempts at humor, it's stuff it's that's tried to keep the people interstitials watching. with, did we need Bette Medler and Steve Martin? Penn and Teller were great. But, yeah, they're fun. Um, and James L. Jones, I love seeing. But it's almost like, let's get Quincy in. It doesn't have that... Uh, what is it? It's almost like, you know the, the conductor, is it... Um, it's not Stravinsky, it's it's the other one, uh, in the original. It wasn't Leopold Stokowski, was it? Stokowski, no. that's it. Yeah. Okay, it was, At yes. the beginning, he's like sort of, Hello, this is Fantasia. And he is a specialist. He's just not the best showman. But you can tell he knows what he's talking about. But you get... Hi, I'm Steve Martin, and I'm that funny guy. And here's yeah. a ter terrible manufactured line that's not funny at all. That is a compromise. That is meddling. Agreed. It is compromised. Now, Fantasia, Fantasia original is much more the uncompromised version yeah, of that, especially absolutely. because Disney, being, Disney himself being in charge was totally that visionary creator guy who was willing yeah. to throw away a lot of money on an idea he yeah. loved. He was, uh, you know, the the the, uh, the the artist, but he had that head for being able to just push forward in the business, and he he had the ability to just be able to, you know, like they're gonna love this, and they didn't, but he really thought they would. <laughs> Yeah, and he doesn't have that Eisner um, ability to, to be able to just be cold-hearted about his own projects. Yeah, like if Disney had the, that Eisner aspect, he would have the animation department of Disney would have gotten axed a long time ago. Yeah. Like even around the time of Sleeping Beauty, he was. You can just sense like reading interviews and hearing about the stuff people have kind of written of him at that time. He just there's kind of a sadness to the way he would that he would talk about how animation was going and just the sense of, I don't know if we can keep really reasonably doing this. <laughs> like this is getting too expensive and it's not like, and it's not making the money back. It needs to, I, I don't know if this can continue as it has. 
but he was kept on fighting and pushing for it always anyway. And I'm really glad he did because I still think animation is the soul of the Disney company and the only reason anybody cares about it hmm. as a brand. Well, but, what might actually eventually happen then, uh, Dan, is somewhere in between what you've just said and what I've just said, there'll be uh, something which retains that artistic vision for some sections, and then there'll be like total branding in others, but really good, and it'll end up actually being maybe the most popular Fantasia uh, type film ever, whether it has the name or not. Disney are going to do something like this. Oh, sure. And looking at the development of this, like some, it's some of the other ideas they apparently previously had over the last few decades actually sound really intriguing and like something that might be a bit more successful. Like the idea for Musicana, which was a late 70s sort of project um, that Disney had in mind that was much more like pulling music from lots of uh, from lots of different cultures in the world mm. and creating Fantasia Beast that way. That sounds really interesting. I don't know if it'd be more marketable, but it sounds like a really interesting, cool kind of idea. Or apparently uh, some composer says that at one point this like Fantasia project was meant to be orchestrations of Beatles songs. Yeah. It's a weird idea, but I would love seeing like Beatles music with visual compo- like with Disney accompanied visuals. Like They were going to remake but- Yellow Submarine as well. Yeah, it's like right. that that sort of thing could be a bit more marketable and real I'd love to watch it. That'd be Dave really interesting. Grohl, he's still around. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah, determined to get him in there somewhere, aren't you? Oh, I don't know. They could bring back John Resnick, maybe. Our conclusion on Fantasia two thousand, is there a conclusion? It's another thing that I'm glad it exists. I'm not surprised it collapsed. I don't think we'll be seeing another proper Fantasia for a while oh, given oh, this yeah. over two streak but i do it'll be a shorter gap than between the first two probably so yeah at at this point but i do expect given it is such a legacy piece of disney history and something that does push a lot of it does allow for a lot of experimentation and allowing a lot of tech to be developed for the for uh and new ideas for how their animation can be created I do expect it is something we are going to see again in some form. I've, it's, it's no substitute whatsoever. I've just started playing yesterday the Fantasia game that Harmonix built. It is actually really lovely. I've, uh, it has made me glad that I actually have a connect in my house. It be, just because everything Harmonix makes is like a love letter to something. But I really do want to see Fantasia resurface again in my lifetime at least at some point and i think it will 2060 will be the uh, equal to the gap between one and two so if it's before then and that'll still be within your lifetime so uh yeah fingers crossed it's a long wait but yeah i don't think fantasia 2000 is in no way nearly as significant as the original just as a piece of work and what it accomplished it feels much more like a i'm glad they attempted and i think there are a few bright shining points in there but it is ultimately this isn't a situation where I feel like this should have made so much more than it did. It it feels like it it did what it could. It did what it could. It did a, it did very well in IMAX for like for an IMAX release. Apparently, it was very successful because I don't. I guess IMAX stuff is not super just profitable in general. But yeah, it did what it could. I'm glad they still tried it. But uh, but yeah, the the thought of not of there not being another Fantasia for a long time saddens me. But I am optimistic we will see it again. I don't think I have anything else to add, to be honest. What did you uh, think of our two um, pitches, by the way? 
Um, I like your idea of um, putting the Marvel characters and things. See, in I'm it. all about bringing what the corporate idea of branding and what what's profitable together with that artistic and narrative intent and bringing a story into that and, and basically making Avengers. Mm. Just making something that works for absolutely everybody except for those few people who don't like the Avengers and there's something wrong with it. But I think what you're talking about, depending on how you put it together, if it's if it's segments, each devoted to its own little set of characters, mm -hmm then it's going to feel like Kingdom Hearts. And if it's a, a lengthy story involving lots of crossover worlds, it's going to feel like fanfic. Hang on, have you played Kingdom Hearts? Is that not I where they're going with Infinity, though? <laughs> I guess in a way it kind of is. Yeah, yeah, Infinity is sort of a... Well, see, Infinity is a, is, is, uh, Infinity is a really shallow version of what I'm talking about here. It's it's just a bunch of fun, quirky little mini games. It's just it's riffing on um, Skylanders and Lego. It's yeah, it's, it's not it's not offering up the narrative that I'm suggesting here and and the uh, emotion that can be captured through visual storytelling and music together. There aren't many other companies on earth that actually have all of these tools at their disposal. And That's very true. Disney it, is a pantheon of entertainment right yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, people just love that stuff. And obviously the Marvel Cinematic Universe people love the idea of overarching links between them. It doesn't just have to be like fanfic and then suddenly Han Solo hung out with Iron Man and it was the tits. Um, <laughs> obviously, that would be awesome, they must retain a certain amount of integrity to both the story and literally put walls up between these worlds. It's not just a case that they can stroll in and out of each other's stories. But Wreck-It Ralph has already shown that there is a rich world that can be uh, delivered to us with Disney magic by suggesting that these characters know each other or yeah. can interact or can pass in and out of each other's worlds. And it's not horrible and corporate. There is actually some, a lot of really, I mean, we're just entering into an age now where that is not only possible, but actually it's, it's selling like hotcakes and people respond very well to it. And, you know, Disney own all of the cake manufacturers. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, it's, uh, if, if Infinity sells a lot, then we're going to see a film or a series of films like that anyway. So it may as well be introduced to us in a wonderful musical fashion because I mean yeah put it like this Paperman in no way related to existing Disney characters it doesn't actually have to be if Paperman was a part of a new Fantasia film it's entirely wordless and it's absolutely linked to the music that is conveying with the story it's wonderful deliver me seven vignettes like that not only I, but millions of people would go and see that. And if three or four of those vignettes just happen to include classic Disney characters and or Star Wars characters and or Marvel characters, millions more will go and see it. That's just me trying to think like a marketer, but at the same time retain that sense of remit as a storyteller. Disney's original remit was to make people's dreams come true. Now people's dreams involve characters from Marvel movies and Star Wars, so uh, if they've got these tools available to them 
Anyway, I'm pushing way too hard for this one, but uh, it's just it's a, it's an idea that I had while I was watching Fantasia, and I was bored out of my skull. So I just thought, what would suddenly make things really interesting, and what could Disney do? This is not me um, jabbing at, at uh, Fantasia 2000. It does it does what it's uh, attempting to do in a way that's actually a lot more faithful than it had to be. Yeah, and what and the thing that you're pitching is still something that I would love to watch and see happen. It's just not Fantasia. Right, it's a different thing, but it's something that I would still definitely enjoy. Yeah. And that is it for Fantasia 2000. A massive thank you to Daniel Floyd for his brilliant guesting, as usual. And I apologize for being quite so truculent and dismissive throughout this episode. It was recorded back in 2014, immediately after the Tarzan show, and I had a rotten cold before we even began, so I think I might have been a bit delirious at the time. Still... No excuse for rudeness. And we ended up getting a great talk out of this little film nonetheless, thanks to Dan and Sharon. Let me know what you thought of the Disney musical extravaganza idea that wouldn't be called Fantasia 3D, and what kind of sequences you'd like to see. It was a shame about Disney Infinity going under since we recorded that, because the third volume of that game got pretty good. And we'll see if the fan service Easter egg canon Ready Player One makes all the money this year by somehow being a coherent story that justifies the appearances of so many of our favourites. Or if it's a soulless cash grab. A huge thank you to our special sponsors this month. That's Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Christopher Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And next week we take a break from Disney classics and go back to the Star Wars prequels for a special episode that may change the way you feel about them. It certainly did for us. It's called We Need to Talk About Anakin. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
this idea I've had for years kind of sprang for do you remember the Lilo and Stitch commercials the, the, the uh, little yeah. trailers where Stitch I sort of went them. in and out of Disney uh, movies and I was really excited I was like what is this film going to be as it turned out the film was you know fan bloody tastic but I always thought well, why didn't Stitch go and hang out with Aladdin and, and Beauty and the Beast? And that, that would have been fun. Yeah, it, it did introduce a funny idea that the film wasn't really about at all, but that was a fun advertising campaign. <laughs> Stitch would have gone into those movies and bitten those people really hard. Yes. <laughs> The Disney shows will return. Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Dinosaur. On May 19th, discover a world that you've only imagined. Hey, watch it! Here's your girlfriend. What you need is a little help from the love monkey. Walt Disney Pictures presents a story of courage, friendship, loyalty, gotta get up, and hope. Stand together! Dinosaur, rated PG. With me once again are my wife and co-host Sharon Shaw. Hello. And the voice of extra credits, Mr. Daniel Floyd. Hello. Hello. Released in May 2000, Dinosaur was the first theatrically released animated Disney film to rely on 3D computer graphical animation over 2D cell animation. Is that correct? I believe so. Although they didn't count it as a can- like they didn't count it as part of the Disney canon until about a decade later. Retroactively. Yeah. yeah. Curiously, this is not observed as one of the canon in the UK at all. They classify the Emperor's New Groove as the 39th and include Wild as their 46th, with Meet the Robinsons being the 47th in both regions and the numbering returning to form. I think both films are rubbish and both should be struck from the canon, but Disney never replied to my many letters. Others that I'd urge to have removed include Saludos Amigos, The Three Caballeros, Make My Music, Fun and Fancy Free, Melody Time, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, The Black Cauldron, Home on the Range, Chicken Little, and Bolt, which would leave Big Hero 6 as the 43rd. The most likely reason not to do this is the many, many numbered boxed collections sitting on collector's shelves, which would of course be suddenly wrongly numbered. But since this dinosaur disparity exists, they are anyway, so why not just have a clear out? By the way, Dinosaur Disparity is our Dinosaur Junior cover band. Well done. Or possibly T-Rex. <laughs> yeah, I can understand given that the uh, if their rules for what goes in the canon mm. are anything that was produced by the, by the Walt Disney Animation uh, Studio as opposed to outsourced yeah. to a, a branch or something else. I, I get that. And I can understand why this would be added later too given that it's kind of gray area. It's kind of partly the... Disney Animation 3D departments melded with another group. It, it's 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 very gray area. This one, but the fact that it is gray area suggests maybe it shouldn't have been added. Uh, yeah, I'd be fine with it not being in the. Also, it's certainly not like a pioneering technique that they picked up and ran with. So it's not like that yeah. we, we first established this technique here. Now, it doesn't mean that the ones that I just mentioned aren't important stepping stones along the way. It doesn't make them disappear from history or our collections. 
but it does refocus the historical through line of the studio. So, for, say, for example, Songs of the South is would never get in there, even though it has an animated element. And Who Framed Roger Rabbit, for example, would never get in there because it's not a wholly animated movie. But I'd argue that Who Framed Roger Rabbit has more of a Disney feel to it than Dinosaur, and actually is probably more animated than Dinosaur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, now, my reasoning is mainly down to how far from what we consider a true Disney film these 11 are. Of course, if they start striking off every film that was a critical or financial disappointment at the time, we'd be left with about 20. So maybe it's best to leave them where they are after all. Anyway, let's talk dinosaur, which blends real-life backgrounds filmed on camera with CG dinosaurs chatting with lemurs and basically devours and regurgitates the 1988 animation classic from Don Bluth, The Land Before Time, forgetting any of the charm or heartache along the way. So... (laughs) Dinosaur. We turned a corner last time, didn't we? It was Fantasia 2000, and then we're out of the Renaissance, and we start with a whimper. Yeah, these next three, four, five, these next seven Disney animated features are all very unusual. Uh, The ones we're recording today are kind of an unusual trio in general, but Renaissance formula has worn thin and Disney's lost confidence in it. And now they're, you kind of get the sense that they're grasping for the next recipe for success, but they don't know what it is. So they're just trying weird stuff that doesn't really feel like Disney, but, and they're, success rate is about 50-50. My theory was that um, uh, because they'd had absolute dominance throughout the 20th century, that that, there was no point having a Best Animated Film Oscar up until like 15 years ago because it was always just Disney, 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 Disney. And then Don Bluth tried a bit and, uh, you know, Warner Brothers tried a bit. And um, it wasn't really until DreamWorks came along and actually challenged them and then a bunch of others uh, joined suit. If we don't count Studio Ghibli and everything made outside the West, um, that suddenly they were being challenged. And rather than just continuing to do what they excelled at, they started trying to do other stuff. And with mixed results. Yeah, that, that I guess I mean, with Pixar being on, in the Disney fold, or at least uh, them uh, publishing and, and uh, kind of, selling all the, the yeah. Pixar films. They're not going to be the right competition strongly. there. Yeah. Uh, and, and even though I wouldn't even consider them indirect competition with outside stuff like Ghibli at all, by this point, I think they were actually producing the Western releases of the Ghibli films as well. So well, indeed, also, yeah. also the way it came out in like 2000, 2001, didn't it? In yeah, right Western. around there. And, uh, and yeah, so they're not getting any competition from there. It really is DreamWorks coming onto the scene that is providing and Shrek at this point doesn't come out for another couple of years I don't think I think uh, Shrek was late 2001 okay so yeah Shrek so DreamWorks isn't yet providing that big uh, competition but there, there's more players on the field now for sure and what's more Disney's stuff isn't do like even if you're not looking for some other competitor doing huge numbers to compare to Disney's not bringing in huge numbers at all anymore so even just competing with their past selves mm. they are lo- they're losing oh so uh, hang on correction uh, shrek was may 2001 and dreamworks had had a go at uh, challenging pixar directly with ants coming out like a few months before a bug's life did well, that was with uh, pdi yeah. a uh, i think pdi now been absorbed haven't they uh yeah they were, yeah pdi is a part of dreamworks and Dr- uh, dreamworks is going through some weird stuff lately selling off studios and so i don't know what they're doing mm. uh Hey, yeah, maybe well, we should do a DreamWorks series now. <laughs> <laughs> God, that'd be hard. Uh, but yeah, so the 
the creation of this movie is uh, it's all kinds of weird. So, in 1988, same year as Land Before Time uh, coming out, um, this would be back when like Oliver and Company was coming out. It was before the Renaissance of Disney's animation. Yeah, uh, uh, Oliver and Company was November '88, and it came out just after uh, Land Before Time, and it actually did quite well. Yeah, yeah, but um, around that time, uh, Paul Verhoeven and Phil Tippett uh, from uh, Industrial Light and Magic approached Disney with the idea of making a stop-motion film about dinosaurs. Wasn't Phil Tippett the dinosaur wrangler for Jurassic Park? The dinosaur he was handler? One, he was, one of, the, he was uh, one of the guys who did a lot of the... He was going to be going into Jurassic Park doing a lot of the practical effects, and mm-hmm. then they experimented with CG, and uh, um, Spielberg had joked to Tippett, uh, like, looks like you're out of a job now. <laughs> yeah. But Tippett was, actually worked very heavily on the practical effects, and his stop-motion team actually did a lot of work on the CG animation of the dinosaurs using some, like, they actually built um, armatures, like, stop-motion-style armatures of these dinosaurs that they animated, and they took that information into the computer. It was a very cool stop-motion CG combination that is part of why I still think the Jurassic Park dinosaur stuff still holds up so well. Oh, God, yes. But, uh, but yeah, so that, that Phil Tippett and Paul Verhoeven, which is weird... Uh, was so they approached Disney wanting to make a stop motion film about dinosaurs, and what they pitched was going to be very different from a typical Disney animated feature. No dialogue, more oh. violent, uh, ending with a mass extinction event. Exactly what I would have suggested. Me and Phil <laughs> Tippett were like this, <laughs> basically uh, just like a really big version of that bit in uh, Fantasia. Yeah, yeah, it's very much like uh, uh, the Rite of Spring. It's it sounds mm, like, mm. but for but a feature film, which I mean, that could be interesting. And just remember, I mean, this is pre Renaissance. Disney's not in a good way at this point. Yeah. they might have been willing to roll the dice on this sort of unusual thing. Yeah, but and they not, probably yeah. they the probably Little got Mermaid started probably, on it. Uh, probably yeah, probably yeah, yeah. It's like no, oh, Broadway musicals, Howard Ashman. So it, yeah, I, exactly. actually, I, I can't say that was a bad idea at all. <laughs> Oh, agreed. I, I, th- I expect they started kind of uh, brainstorming a little bit, coming up with some ideas, and then Little Mermaid came out. And they... and then a certain other little film came out in 1993, <laughs> which kind of made people dinosaur nuts. Yeah. So maybe if thing, Disney like... had had something coming out around about that time, people would have gone double dinosaur nuts. It's entirely possible. But but yeah, with I mean, with Mermaid coming out and the Renaissance starting. Mm. Uh, at that point, they didn't need a Hail Mary anymore, so the Dinosaur sure, sure. Project just got shelved. Actually, speaking of, if they had, then Phil Tippett would have found his dinosaur duties stretched very thin across the two projects. He would indeed. He probably I mean, would have had to might, choose. He might have, and I don't would know. Would have been if, robbed of Jurassic Park. Quite possibly. Or Jurassic or, Park yeah. would have been a very different thing. Jeez. Okay. Like, yeah, who, who knows? Weird alternate universe. Either way, we wouldn't have had dinosaur. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're yeah. I think we're in the best timeline for this. Uh, fast forward a few years, um, then yeah, Jurassic Park comes out. Uh, live live action film, mm-hmm. groundbreaking CG and practical effects work. Uh, some of it supervised by Phil Tippett himself. Uh, I think by the time this Jurassic- episode comes out, we'll have already reviewed the entire Jurassic Park trilogy and Jurassic World, and we'll have seen Jurassic World. And oh my yeah. god, Jurassic World was so good, bad, brilliant, terrible, boring, <laughs> fun. <laughs> <laughs> delete as applicable <laughs> <laughs> we'll fix it in post <laughs> we'll do it uh, but yeah no jurassic park earned an insane 900 million dollars which is the highest box office earning in history up to that point because i mean just the film was huge and i can't verify this but i think it's safe to assume that at this point disney started reconsidering their dinosaur film that they had shelved yeah so they brought in some new directors they um 
dropped the stop motion idea and aped the Jurassic Park style CG thing, composited over live action landscapes because that was it was the biggest movie in the world. But that's the thing. Jurassic Park wasn't just CG. It was CG for some of it, but it was model work for some of it. And it blended also the two true. so perfectly. Yep. And uh, dinosaurs didn't speak, except for that one bit of Jurassic Park 3. Alan! Uh, Alan! <laughs> Sorry, carry on. I'd forgotten about that. Oh. Wake up, Alan! Jeez. Complain's about to crash. <laughs> I think this is something that they, they seem to miss, though, when... Um, and it's it's not just Disney that have done this, but when they're, they're looking for the next big thing and the next um, uh, style going to bring in the big bank consistently and for the rest of all time mm-hmm. um there seems to be a lack of of balance in it i mean the the whole point of why jurassic park was so brilliant to watch and most importantly why it still is is that balance is that combination of cg when cg works best and model work when model work works best and um you know finding ways to combine the two and i would say that the vast majority of the films that we enjoy that employ cg effects it's the the way it's combined with live action and the way it's combined with model work that makes it so brilliant. If you try and rely too heavily on one thing and you go, we're going to push this as far as we can, it's going to fold in on you. Yeah, yeah, it's just the nature of trying to pioneer something like that. It's You're not going to get it perfect on the first try, and it's going to be an imperfect attempt for all time. That's very true, actually. Even the, when, uh, say, for example, with Aliens, when they couldn't do the CG, they were like, right, we've only got model work and suits here. Let's make artful use of shadow to hide our work, and we will allow the imagination to fill in the blanks. Yeah. And to a point, I think choosing to go with the Jurassic Park live-action uh, environment uh, might have been a bit of a concession to that, or at least I, I don't know if it's really was i can't know for sure if it was that they were just trying to ape the look of jurassic park or if they were finding a way to be more efficient and effective and blend live action with the cg dinosaurs for just more cost effective measures Mm. or to make sure that it looked better it's hard to know and i think it probably does look a lot better in that regard than it would if they'd tried to go full cg with all the environments as well they blend pretty well i mean it's it's actually uh for the first few minutes of this film is actually pretty effective they they don't talk it's all just dinosaurs doing dinosaur things and being very non-human and if it had been the whole way through like that and made it a challenge i've been saying this since day one if they'd made it a challenge of like we've got to tell this story without a single word and it's all um visual storytelling and sort of bringing out uh it, relatable emotions from these creatures while still retaining that they are definitely creatures and they're not um, anthropomorphic. That would have been ballsy. And they, it would this have been. was not ballsy. The second they start talking, it's like, oh, oh, it's totally bland and it's just going to be like this the whole way through. Okay, fine, I can just sleep now then. And that's it for the rest of the film. I think part of that is lack of faith in their own abilities or somebody having lack of faith in their animators abilities in this particular instance because I mean one of the things we remarked on when we were watching it was that uh, while it is technically pretty damn good I mean if you look at some of the things like the uh, the textures on the dinosaur's skin mm-hmm. um, if you look at the way that they've interacted um integrated it sorry with the live action backgrounds where you've got uh, water interacting with um uh, main dinosaur whose name 
completely escaped. Exactly. Which is terrible. Yeah. And there <laughs> you go. It's a character piece, and we don't remember the names of the characters. Yeah, Fail. absolutely. But if you if you look at how they've made the water splash over his legs and his toes interact with yeah. the gravel as he's coming out of the lake, they, that they shows the, real dedication yeah. to your art. They've they really made the an effort worlds. there. And yet, it's it strikes me that it's technically... Or they, they've left it to the people who are technically really, really good, but there seems to be a lack of art in mm. this one. Yeah. I noted that uh, uh, Aladar didn't have a shadow at one point. He's in the desert, the sun's over there, and it's like, wow, he's standing on those rocks, and where's his shadow gone? And then suddenly it was there, but it kept leaping to the left and then to the right, and it's like, well, hang on, where's the sun? And it, strangely enough, if they're just focused on that, being able to show you this is where the sun is, this is where Aladar is, that's thus where his shadow goes, and kept the camera moving around and kept that shadow consistent, that would have sold that dinosaur was really standing there. But instead, it's, it's just one of those big action sequences where he's charging around the place, and it's just like uh, floopy. It's always the little tiny things that make the uh, the photo reel look mm. fall apart, crumble and fall apart. At, uh Let's, I can see Disney also feeling a sense of confidence in knowing they have an existing team of CG. They have an existing 3D department of guys who've been making uh, who've been making stuff to kind of uh, strengthen and help the 2D films they've been making. Mm. And I can see them thinking oh, they ended up combining that group with another production studio called uh, uh, what are they called Dream Quest Images mm-hmm. and made. Uh, a new production studio that they called the, the Secret Lab. So this is not produced by the same 3D team that would go on to make all the 3D Disney films later, but it was just this, it was kind of their existing studio folded in with another one, mm-hmm. which got scrapped after this movie. Mm. It cost $128 million to make, too, which is twice the budget of Jurassic Park. Jesus, and, seriously? Yeah, $60 million for Jurassic Park. Wow, that's economic. Really, that's really cheap. I don't know how they made Jurassic Park for $60 million, but boy... But yeah, most expensive Disney film to date. That's for sure. Mm. Spared no expense. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not including Tangled. Yeah, oh no, no. Of course, like, it was, oh, oh, I see what you mean. Sorry, yeah. until now. Just to date. But yeah, Tangled was Tangled, <laughs> Tangled was a whole other monster of expense. Tangled was a down payment included, on Frozen. <laughs> that included studio setups. So did Dinosaur have to incorporate costs for setting up the studios to do this? That's possible. I don't know if they factored that into the budget. Mm. Granted, they had two existing studios that were that were set up to begin with, but re like folding them together and probably giving them a combined space and all that. Probably, I'm sure that's an investment that that costs money. There was some. I mean, there's, there's some great technical ideas. Like uh, rather than just barreling along in a jeep where the uh, camera's going to be jiggling up and down. Although, actually, now that I mention that. If they had done that, that would have given it a kind of a shaky cam kind of like J.J. J. Abrams style. You're actually there, barreling along in the Jeep, and you're actually seeing dinosaurs. Way! As opposed to, like, gliding along, like, perfectly way. It's, it's... Man, I think I just stepped on my own point there. Like, they set up a rig and a crane to allow the camera to sort of glide along the landscape for these massive, sweeping, epic shots. So it feels um, big... But it also because you've seen this replicated in CG so much since then, it feels like it's just a really good CG background. Well, it's it's good economy because it's a lot cheaper than rendering that, especially in those days. And it would have looked terrible because, I mean, like CG backgrounds in those days, you're, you're talking Shrek, which by today's standards does look terrible in the background. Yeah. I wonder how far compositing technology had gotten by that point mm-hmm. because the, the problem – 
one of the real headaches with cam type stuff is <laughs> ma- like with CG is you're having to match the movement of the uh, characters and everything else yeah. to the uh, to the background that's shaking around and moving a lot with every jiggle of the camera. And yeah. early on, that was why a lot of CG stuff was very smooth and perfect because, because like, just very to, smooth yeah. camera shots because matching that was really a challenge. And I see. And it was otherwise uh, the actual models would be jiggling all over the place like a glitch. Yeah, just if those two are not the movement of the characters and the set and everything else isn't perfectly in sync, then you'll feel that bit of disconnect. And it was just really difficult to do early on. I don't. Maybe it was possible by this point. I, I've not. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly what year it started. You started really seeing a lot more shaky yeah. cam and CG effects, but th- that might have been a big challenge for them then. I think J.J. Uh, Abrams may have sort of un- ushered that one in. Uh, there, were, there were others before him, but uh, I mean, Firefly was a, a, yeah. a good example. Uh, actually. I hate crediting this, but uh, episode two, Attack of the Clones, uh, when George was like filming the clones doing their attack at the very end, the titular attack, um, he did a lot of kind of shaky sort of zoom in, zoom out to make it seem like you were actually there on the battlefield. Didn't sell it, but it was a first for that technique. And then Firefly came out shortly afterwards. I have to look this up later. Now I'm just curious as to when this shaky stuff started started mm. uh, coming into play. Like what, what, what were the earliest ones? It's hugely effective, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to dinosaur. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of visual problems that I could nitpick. Yes, please do. Movie, please but... nitpick. We want to know, because that way when we watch it again, we're not going to. But if we did, and if our listeners are curious and they want to go back and watch it, they'll be able to look out for this stuff. Uh, really, it's it's not even that there are lots of specific visual problems. The, the, the little specific issues are mostly to do just with d- just dated work and dated technology. And all, like we've... Uh, the CG stuff has come a long way since then. So it's just the same problems you see in a lot of early things that don't age really well. The The real larger problem they have is just the aesthetic design choice. Because if you if you want to do realistically rendered dinosaurs over live action backgrounds, that's fine. That works. Jurassic Park did it wonderfully. Mm-hmm. If you want to do goofy, unrealistic animation and talking animal characters like a standard Disney film <laughs> with a fo- realistically rendered dinosaurs and on live action backgrounds. And them together. That does not work. That doesn't work at all. Those, it just feels weird to watch. The look of the film is too grounded in reality to match that sort of cartoony Disney approach to character. Yeah. And I know why they chose that look. It's because I mean, that's how Jurassic Park looks. And Jurassic Park made almost a billion dollars. And, and I can yeah, understand Jurassic the Park wanting... didn't have goofy talking animals in it. And when well, it no. did, it was Mr. DNA and it was a parody. There are two directions they could have gone with this. They could have stuck with the realistically rendered Jurassic Park look and tried to do this Rites of Spring, like no dialogue. People would have hated very, it. They hated, Jura- they hated Fantasia 2000 as well. If they, if they tried to keep it serious, people would not have loved it. Very possible. And I'm not sure the story... Like, do telling that a story that's interesting in that sort of way is a big challenge and i'm not sure this like given how un, like uninteresting and dull this story ends up being and these characters end up being yeah i don't i don't think this team was capable of pulling off a wally like a, a yeah. first half hour of wally for an they entire film that's a big subtlety challenge. in in terms of being able to put across what they're feeling in gestures and eye movements because if they had they'd have bloody done it in the characters not just relied on the terrible script to just sort of putter it out yeah it, it would have been an enormous challenge and i'm not sure that they were entirely up to it but mm. given that the alternative way to go would be to go with a less photoreal design like mm. uh caricaturize the dinosaur designs a bit go do ice age basically yeah yeah make ice, ice age. age made bank they, uh, it did 
but I can understand them wanting to push the spectacle angle and trying to go for that same wow, real dinosaurs factor that Jurassic Park had, but it's a complete aesthetic mismatch for the film they're trying to make. I hate Ice Age, but it had that one bit with the cave paintings when Ray Romano uh, Mammoth is really sad that just destroys everything in Disney's dinosaur in terms of being able to evoke emotion from a, a CG creature. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right, for the first five, ten dialogue-free minutes, it almost does kind of work. Like, it's not super exciting or engaging in a story sense, and the effects aren't as impressive as they used to be, but they're still, like, it suggests a lot of potential, and there is that feeling mm. of awe watching it that just, wow, look at what they've pulled off here, and you, you really feel this sort of dinosaurs in a realistic world. It's very cool. Mm. And then, then the lemurs start talking, and it just... <laughs> nose dives from it's there. not just that they're talking it's that they're talking like a modern day family and obviously when we last saw it we hadn't yet seen the crudes have you seen the crudes dan i still haven't seen the crudes i've heard good um, things though the crudes is good it's not um how to train your dragon great or uh, um uh, lilo and stitch great but it is good it is a it's a, it's a modern day style family uh, but they're in a caveman setting um but they get just enough idiosyncrasies of being a caveman to really kind of sell you what, how they have to live. Whereas with these monkey lemur things, it's, how do they live? They live in a tree. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I'm comparing it to something you haven't seen. But uh, yeah, with, with the crudes, it's all about, you know, if we don't get in our cave before sundown, we all die. According to Papa Nick Cage, who is actually really great in it. <laughs> I, I need to watch this movie. I, I've yeah. been putting it off too long. And Emma Stone. Oh, fantastic. It's not ju- even just that the lemurs are just talking in a natural, normal people way, but it's that they are pulling these big, goofy, cartoony expressions mm. with a realistic design, lemur design, which just looks like a... Uh, mm. and you know, the, the there are the people who uh, like criticized... like. Um, Puss in Boots and Shrek 2 saying it just looks like they took a dead cat and like brought it to, and like are like are Jesus, seriously? It. I've never heard that but, before. Which I disagree with entirely because I think they did a good job with Puss in Boots but yeah, I, I completely agree that it looks that way with this. It looks like there's like they just took some dead lever animals and have like Ugh. weirdly contorted them making weird faces. It's so just, they're blood bending them. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they <laughs> Basically. I mentioned to Sharon that they don't look, seem like they have the the musculature around their body it just seems like a wafer thin layer of skin and then we found out later after watching it that oh we paid a lot of attention to the musculature all over their bodies and it's like wow that's the one thing i felt like you didn't do at all i will give them credit this is a significant technical achievement for that time mm. for then like uh when no one had done anything yeah i mean given how and consider like jurassic park did a phenomenal job of what it did and it, it was a combination of cg and practical effects mm-hmm. for sure but the actual cg like the amount of footage with cg digital effects dinosaurs in it is actually very small that's very few shots 12 minutes and so they could really sink a lot of time and investment in those shots getting it right and this is the entire movie which is impressive undertaking yeah. and they do quite well considering that but the story sure doesn't carry it and yeah, yeah. the visuals certainly haven't a- haven't aged well, so you're left with not a whole lot. Yeah, it's Sharon I mean, said it was a tech demo. Yeah, yeah. My frustration with the lemurs, I think, was primarily because they shouldn't have been there at all. <laughs> oh um, yes, it's a I historical mean, they, they, they one. They concede the in the well, no, but I mean they. <laughs> 
what I'm trying to say is, although they do concede in the, although they do concede in the commentary, I think it was that the lemurs did just didn't exist at that time and and wouldn't for many many millions of years. It it almost seems like the reason they put them in there was again they didn't have faith in the story they were trying to tell. It's like people aren't going to relate to this unless there's something in there with hands. Mm. Mm. Or, you know, yeah. we need a mammal or this just isn't going to fly. I mean, what what are you trying to do? Do you want to do a film about dinosaurs or do you want to do a film about lemurs? Because you really need to pick one. Yeah, they do kind of lose any sense of purpose in the story after Aladar does find the herd. Because yeah. after that, and they're pretty the, much just hanging out. If the purpose <laughs> is supposed to be the, um, the, the idea of the lemurs taking in this baby that's nothing to do with them and is, is completely different, them, isn't that kind of what they addressed with the different species in Land Before Time? Mm. No, because yeah. that had a really great social commentary to it. I mean, I've never like been a major fan of Land Before Time uh, growing up. I, I just, I kind of, like, it passed me by. But then I saw it again more recently, and it was just heartbreakingly beautiful. Uh, it's, it's not a brilliant film. It's just, it's way better than Oliver and Company. Uh, for, but by today's standards, it, it captivated Lyra. Yeah, and it looks Land Before Time looks a whole lot better when it's standing next to Dinosaur. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And both of them are basically trying to continue on the Rites of Spring section in Fantasia, and one of them does it better than the other. And maybe if Dinosaur wasn't aping Land Before Time so much, if it did its own thing, it wouldn't feel so stale. I mean, it's not just that the film has dated effects and a weak story, and you don't care about the characters, but the plot is ripped right out of Land Before Time. So this is basically a double Spielberg knockoff. Yeah. So Alex Spielberg must have been sat in that audience. Like, he's friends with Disney. He was just sat there going, yeah, oh, oh, really? Oh, okay, okay. I'll just watch them get to the Great Valley or the whatever it's called. It feels very disingenuous as well to try and shoehorn a very happy ever after ending onto dinosaurs. Yeah, because yeah. We, we know, know they're going to die. Out. It's different in the Land Before Time because we know they get ten sequels, so we know at least these dinosaurs <laughs> are going to carry on, <laughs> albeit in a rubbish form. And they fall back on um, very, very simple uh, character types so frequently with this. They're so two-dimensional in terms of, of what they do and, and how they react to things. And even to the point where, oh, this really made me cross aladar and the girl dinosaur that they immediately start trying to push him together with because they're the same species i know her name but i'm not going to tell so, you because that's how it should be if you can't remember her name it, she doesn't deserve- is it nida or something like that it's pleader plo, plo, no it's not meda is it quarter i'm f- sure it begins with n zini suri cron brutal anyway nira. beside the nearer it is but not to be confused. They're supposed to be... Brutum. But they're supposed to be the same species, but she's got like a pink shade to her colouring, and he's got like a blue shade to their colouring, so that you can make sure you know that he's the boy and she's the girl in that particular species and they belong together, which is really messed up for all the dinosaurs that are green and yellow <laughs> and appear to be the only one remaining of their species. Yeah. I've got a couple of notes down here while I was sitting. I'll, I'll skip over most of them, but a couple of them stand out. Oh, the baby, grumpy papa like baby, baby we on grumpy papa. They actually went there. They're just straight off like he holds up the baby and it wheezes on him and it laughs. And like children in the audience will go. <laughs> and it's like, that You're was the they actually, easiest joke. 
No, but it's actually, so I, rare that that's not done. Yeah, I sat in the cinema with this stony face, and I don't remember. I think I remember kids. You know when kids are like really restless and they're not engaged with the story and they're just sort of shouting stuff and going blah 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 blah, and they're having extended conversations with their mum. That um, disgusting rat creature. <laughs> One of the brothers was basically uh, Andy Dick from uh, uh, Lion King Two: Simba's Pride. Aladar the Blandosaurus is Chris Klein in dinosaur form, and. Um, when they go to the Great Valley slash nesting ground, they're, they're led apparently by the Ain Randosaurus. The, uh, every, every creature that's lagging behind is a parasite and must be forgotten and ignored. The, the worst thing about that is he's kind of got a point, but they show no real conflict in there. There's no real sense of actually maybe that we should sort of like set up maybe some scouts to go ahead and, and to come back and that I've got I've got all of these people relying dinosaurs relying on me you know uh, if we do go at the speed of the slowest sickest member we might not make it across this incredibly hot desert without us all dying um, if his if his emphasis had been for the good of the herd yeah. that would have made much more sense yeah and like if 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 at the end he sort of has kind of you know I, I I'm you know I'm trying to do this for for people and and it's sort of still there so he doesn't end up dying the villain but um so so you know he can be mourned a little bit but it's all kind of oh poor what's his name Bruton. and there's my point no Bruton's his friend isn't it no Bruton is he's um I've forgotten her name again no no wait Bruton is the Neither. second in command yeah no Kron. it's Kron. 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 Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, I don't Kron's care. The one that, I don't care either. <laughs> well, it takes a lot to make Dan not care. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> if you watch the deleted scenes, there's at least one which is better than any other scene in the film, which is that uh, he was originally supposed to have grandparents, like in Land Before Time, and uh, then when they're being um, chased by the Carnotaurs, the meat-eating metasauruses, what can't talk, the grandfather sort of goes, "Oh, you know, I just need a little bit of a rest," and he knows that they're going to eat him, but he knows that that will. Um, keep them busy for just long enough to maybe let the rest of the herd get away. And um, Aladar just sort of, you know, says goodbye to him and then has to go. And and then he just sort of lays down and the Carnotaurs close in. And they took that out because, of course, it would have upset the kids. Yeah, it would also make the film exceptional in any way. Yeah. Which, in you other words, I, it's not. I should get... All right, I'm going to give them credit for one little sequence, though. Okay. Just, just so we can give them something. The sequence with the meteors falling from the sky and that little moment of silence and awe and fear mm. that they create, just with every all the uh, uh, Aladar and all of the lemurs watching it, the uh, just the the beauty of the seeing kind of that pur- the purple like just rain through an orange sky, mm. and the and it turns into explosions tre- trepidation, and then just yeah the huge like enormous explosion it creates, and then that that uh, that snap transition from it's like wow that's incredible what is that to oh no oh no oh no that that is actually a pretty well done sequence i think hmm. it's uh, it, i mean it's not matched by anything else that happens at any point in the film i i in my opinion but i think at least that bit well done good hmm. successful moment and the, <laughs> and film, the, the film did well i mean it well enough it, yeah it didn't lose I mean, them terrible amounts of money like fantasia 2000 lost them so much yeah i mean this made back twice what it cost on yeah, the end 3.9 so. million out of 127 so yeah, better than the next two we're going to talk about mm-hmm. uh, fantasia 2000 just as a reminder folks cost 80 million made 90 million so actually technically it made its money back just yeah. but it lost them coming 
at the end of the Disney renaissance of the 90s, it lost them confidence, which led to bad things. Yeah. And also, you know, it's something that they've been planning to do for ages. They were like, let's go back and do Fantasia. We think this challenging project that couldn't work the first time will work the second time. It doesn't work! Ultimately, this is just a Land Before Time knockoff with none of the character and none of the heart and none of the charm Mm. built specifically to capitalize on Jurassic Park's success. Just Seven years too late. (laughs) Yeah, just, Just watch the Land Before Time and Jurassic Park instead. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, that's a fun afternoon. Yeah. Watch them in that order, though. You can't go backwards. Yeah, just don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to add to I can't. Uh, the, 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 what I gleaned from the uh, film at the end is being nice to people is nice. And on that bombshell. Coming up next time, The Emperor's New Groove. Here's some lovely James Newton Howard score for Dinosaur. One of the few things that's actually accomplished about this bland, bland, mediocre film. <laughs> 